Thank you for listening to the Identity House Ministries podcast. We hope you are encouraged and empowered by this week's teaching from Matt Bunk. We get tonight and every Saturday night to just dive into your word, to, uh, to seek out your truth, and to um, commit just a good solid hour to learning about you and to... to uh, to just seeking your face and to seeking your truth, Dad. We are so, so grateful for all of the blessings that you pour out on us. We are so, so grateful that you are persevering to keep us safe through all of this crazy coronavirus stuff. God, we only have faith towards you, Dad. We commit to to not operate in fear. We commit to just trust you in everything because you promised to provide for us. You promised to keep us safe. Um, and you, you are the best provider. You are, you are such a shelter and such a fortress for us. So, Dad, we, we just choose to run to you um, in, this, in this crazy time. And so let tonight be a respite from the craziness. Um, let it just be a, uh, a, a turning back to just what really matters in life, um, talking about your word and just seeking after you. And Dad, I pray as this, as this teaching happens that you would just give me the words to say um, and that your Holy Spirit would be here speaking through uh, what, is, what is said tonight and that hearts and ears would be open to, to your truth, Dad. So we love you so much. We thank you for being a good, good Father. Uh, we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. If you guys want to turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 6, the same place we started two weeks ago. <clears throat> so, two weeks ago we talked about Philip the Evangelist. This week we are talking about Stephen. So, I'm just going to go ahead and give you guys a little backstory, which is kind of what I did, kind of what I did uh, two weeks ago. So, <clears throat> we're picking up Acts chapter six, starting in verse one. Uh, the context of this is that uh, the church. This is post Pentecost. The church has been born, uh, but it is really localized to just Jerusalem. It hasn't spread beyond there uh, very far at all. Um, so we come across this, this situation in Acts chapter 6 where uh, the apostles need a solution to a problem, and the answer to that problem happens to be Stephen and six other deacons. So let's, let's pick up in Acts chapter 6. We're going to read the first ten verses, and we'll kind of go from there. So... Acts chapter 6, starting in verse 1. Now in those days, as the disciples were multiplied, there was a murmuring among the Hellenists against the Hebrews, because their widows were overlooked in the daily distribution. So the twelve called the multitude of disciples together and said, It is not reasonable for us to leave the word of God and serve tables. Brothers, look among yourselves for seven men who are known to be full of the Holy Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint over this duty. But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what was said pleased the whole multitude, and they chose Stephen, who is a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch, whom they presented before the apostles. And when they had prayed, they placed their hands on them. So the word of God spread, and the number of the disciples grew rapidly in Jerusalem, and a great number of the priests were obedient to the faith. Now Stephen, full of faith and power, did great wonders and miracles among the people. 
Then some men rose up from what is called the synagogue of the freedmen, Cyrenians, Alexandrians, and those from Cilicia and, and of Asia, disputing with Stephen. But they were not able to withstand the wisdom and the spirit by which he spoke. So, guys, this is the first mention of Stephen in Scripture. Um, Stephen's start in ministry was very similar. It's almost the same story as Philip's was a couple weeks ago. Um, He starts as a deacon in the Jerusalem church, chosen to serve tables. (laughs) Um, It's it's this scenario where uh, the the Christians were were basically complaining to to the the Jewish Christians in in the Jerusalem church that their widows were being overlooked in, in this daily outward uh, in this daily giving of bread basically their their so their welfare system that they had going on and uh, the the apostles said well you know we don't have time to to really to deal with this we're committed to the ministry of the word and to prayer and to fasting we need some good men to take care of this for us so what they did is uh, they created some criteria by which uh, they were they were looking for for these men and uh, they chose seven deacons. Stephen was one of them, Philip was another, and there's five other guys. So the criteria that uh, these, these men, the, the choice of these men was based on was, uh, in the King James it actually says that they had to be men of honest report, which basically means they had to have a good reputation. They had to be full of the Holy Spirit, and they had to be men of wisdom. Okay, so those are the criteria on which they're, they're, they're choosing these guys. So we already know off the bat, the second that, that, that we hear about Stephen the first time, we know that he's got a good reputation, we know he's full of the Holy Ghost, and we know that he's a man of wisdom. Um, so we, we see that, that criteria in, in uh, verse 3. We additionally see something <clears throat> that said in verse 5 that said about Stephen and not the remaining deacons. So what does it say about Stephen in verse 5? It says, And what was said pleased the whole multitude, and they chose Stephen, who was a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. And they chose Philip and Prochorus and Nicanor and Timo. So, uh, we, just, we just realized we forgot to turn on our, uh, <laughs> our recording device. That's okay. Um, <clears throat> so, something that we know about, about Stephen, the, the Bible makes a point to point out that Stephen is a man of faith that seems to be above and beyond that of his fellow deacons. Um, and that's, that's something important that we'll find moving forward. It's okay. <clears throat> so, uh, yeah, so Stephen's a man of faith. He's full of the Holy Spirit. He's a man of wisdom. Uh, like Philip, he was dispatched into service. He was ordained through prayer and laying on of hands. Uh, which we see um, in verse verse five and six. Um, yep, the, the apostles prayed and laid their hands on them. So that was basically the the ordaining, the the sending out, the the anointing to ministry. So Stephen had that experience, just like uh, just like Philip did, and uh, we see from the the verses following that this is really the point where power is vested upon Stephen. This is really the point where his ministry kicks off, and we see that the power comes because of this laying on of hands, because of this dispatching to service, because of this ordaining to ministry. Um, 
And so that power that's, that's laid upon him is just added on to this impressive list of character traits of his faithfulness, his fullness of the Holy Spirit, his being a man of wisdom, his good reputation. Um, so that, that's really important because we read in verse 8, Stephen, full of faith and power, did great wonders and miracles among the people. So let's talk about Stephen's ministry for a second. Why is it that this passage of Scripture chooses to highlight Stephen's ministry before any of the others and uh, above any of the others uh, of the deacon's ministries? Um, So why does his ministry take off into prominence? The one thing that's said about him that we mentioned before, there's a reason his ministry takes off into prominence, and that's because... He had faith that was greater than the, the remaining deacons. He had a measure of faith that allowed him to move in these signs, wonders, and miracles. And that is something that just pushed his ministry forward. Um, in verse 8, it says, Stephen, full of faith and power. So faith and power appear to be like the two ingredients that are empowering his like signs, wonders, and miracles ministry. So that's a major piece as to why his ministry comes to prominence before any of the other deacons um, and is, is notable in Scripture. So a second reason that his ministry comes to prominence is uh, something out of verse, uh, verse 9 and 10. So verse 9, Then some men rose up from what is called the synagogue of freedmen, disputing with Stephen, but they were not able to withstand the wisdom and the spirit by which he spoke. So not only is there this, this, uh, these signs, wonders, and miracles following Stephen as a result of the faith and power that he operated in, <clears throat> but these signs, wonders, and miracles are accompanied by the irrefutable doctrine that he was so outspoken about. He had this boldness to say what needed to be said. And it was so filled with wisdom that nobody could say anything against it. That's what it says. So I have this little note here. He was not afraid to step on toes or converse with those who disagreed with him. Um, so there were, there were obviously these guys that were basically you know com- coming up against him. And it says they were not able to withstand the wisdom and spirit by which he spoke. What does that mean? That means that they are actively having conversation and debate. They are actively like going, you know, having this this contention about about certain doctrinal positions and, and stuff like that that they couldn't say anything. They couldn't say anything against what Stephen was uh, was was giving out because he was speaking according to his gift of wisdom and he was speaking according to uh, the Holy Spirit that was within him. So he was spirit-led and wisdom-filled. So that gives us a, a pretty good backstory of <clears throat> who Stephen was, what he was like, his character traits. It gives us a really good backstory of how he came to prominence in ministry. He started out serving tables, just like Philip did. 
and he rose to prominence because of his faith that was mixed with the power of the anointing of the Holy Spirit that was on his life. And uh, that faith that he had was a, a real a real key because he's the only one of those deacons of which that level of faith is mentioned. So that's a, that's a really important thing. So um, now, now that we kind of have, have Stephen's backstory, how he comes into ministry, very similar to Philip like we talked about a couple weeks ago. He's followed by signs, wonders, and miracles. Let's talk about um, how Stephen becomes the first martyr of the church. That's, that's really the legacy that he leaves for us. That's, that's what people remember him for. Um, that's, that's like, you know, when you think of Stephen, you think of Stephen the first martyr. So let's talk about that. Let's talk about how that happens. So uh, we pick up Acts chapter 6, starting in verse 11. <clears throat> so it's these guys from the synagogue of freedmen who are disputing with him. Uh, it says, Then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. So they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes and came upon him and seized him and led him to the Sanhedrin and set up false witnesses who said, This man does not cease to speak blasphemous words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs which, which Moses handed down to us. All who sat in the Sanhedrin gazing at him saw his face as the face of an angel. So, uh, Stephen becomes the first martyr. The first step to that is <clears throat> he is seized and he's accused of some crimes. So, what's the reason that he's seized and what is, uh, what's he accused of? So the reason that he seized, uh, the reason that people have, have this uh, uh, vendetta against him is uh, essentially they were envious of him. They were jealous. They were not able to withstand him in, uh, in fair debate. So what did they do? They brought false witnesses against him. A really jealous and petty thing to do. <laughs> um, because they could not counter anything they said, they chose to lie about him. That's... That's uh, a not a good not a good place to be if you're trying to win a debate fairly, <laughs> is if you resort to doing that. But that's what they did. They brought false witnesses against him, and uh, on those grounds, on the grounds of uh, what the false witnesses were saying, they were able to uh, essentially seize him and take him before the Sanhedrin, which is which is the Jewish council. Um, so what's he accused of? Uh, using these kind of half-truths of these false witnesses, they accused him of blaspheming God, Moses, the temple, and the law. So they accused him of blasphemy. Um, <clears throat> that's what it says in, uh, in verse 13 and 14. They said, a false witnesses who said, this man has not ceased to speak blasphemous words against this holy place, the temple, and the law. For we have heard him say, that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs which Moses handed down to us. So, uh, they're making up these, these, these stories about him. Now, <clears throat> I said the word half-truths for a reason because there is, there is some truth. There is some truth to what they're saying. 
Um, I'm, it, we don't have record of Stephen actually saying any of this stuff, but what they're accusing him of are things that Jesus essentially did say or allude to in some way, shape, or form. They're, they've just taken them seriously out of context, right? Taking them seriously out of context. So um, Jesus actually did say that the temple would be destroyed. Matthew chapter 24. He actually did prophesy that. Um, another, in other instances, Jesus talked about how uh, the, he said, This temple will be destroyed, but I will rebuild it in three days. During Jesus' ministry, people took that to mean that the actual temple building itself would be destroyed and that he would rebuild it in three days. But we know that he was talking about his own body. You know, that he would die and rise again from the dead three days later. So there's multiple instances of Jesus talking about the temple being destroyed. Neither of those instances are in the context that Stephen is being accused of speaking here. So Stephen probably did talk about that stuff. And they probably were able to use that against him by taking those things out of context. Um, you know, uh, the other thing that they accused him of was uh, blaspheming the law. Um, there's, I mean, we, we know from Jesus' ministry, one of, one of the whole points of Jesus' ministry was to release us from the bonds of, you know, keeping all of the law of the Old Testament. Jesus said that all of the law is, is in those two greatest commandments. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. On these hang all the law and the prophets. So Jesus was interested in the spirit of the law, and the customs of the law weren't nearly as important. So there is, there is, some, there is some truth behind the, these things that they're accusing Stephen of. They're just taking them way out of context, and it's not fair. It's not fair. So this is how uh, the first steps are taken towards, towards Stephen being martyred. So I think, I, I thought this was really, really interesting. You can read some commentaries, and people will always point to the parallels between what's happening to Stephen here and what happened to Jesus at his trial. The reason that Jesus was, was taken, the reason that um, <clears throat> the Jews wanted to uh, have Jesus crucified. Jesus also had false witnesses brought against him. Um, there were more half-truths without context uh, that were used to accuse him. Jesus was accused of blasphemy against God and the temple. Um, you can look in Matthew chapter 26, if you want to flip there really quickly. Matthew chapter 26, verses 59 through 61. It says, Scripture says, 59, The chief priests and elders in the entire Sanhedrin searched for false witnesses against Jesus to death, but they found none. Yes, though many false witnesses came forward, they found none. At least two false witnesses came forward and said, This fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to build it in three days. So, it's almost, it's almost to the T, the, the same exact accusation. Uh, Stephen was accused of basically repeating Jesus that the temple would be destroyed. In Jesus' Jesus's trial before... Uh, before the Sanhedrin, before the same group of people. It's, you know, he's saying the temple will be destroyed. 
Um, we also see in Matthew chapter 27, there's just one verse that, um, is it Pilate or Herod? Verse 18, Pilate, Pilate knew that the reason uh, the Jewish leaders delivered Jesus up was because they were envious of him. It literally says that. He, he knew that they delivered him up for envy. Uh, that's in Matthew chapter 27, verse 18. So the parallels are crazy. It's, 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 so, it's so close. Um, so let, let's move on, and there's going to be more parallels as we go, which is crazy. So if you flip back to Acts chapter 6, the end of the ver, the end of that passage we just read, um, they bring these accusations against him, and it says, All who sat in the Sanhedrin gazing at him saw his face as the face of an angel. That's pretty crazy. They had to, they had to know something was special about this guy if he looked like that. <laughs> If you look like that. But anyway, what's Stephen's response to all this? What's Stephen's response to all these accusations that are brought against him? What's, what's Stephen's response to, to essentially being seized and accused of blasphemy? Uh, he gives us this super long speech, which basically encompasses the entirety of Acts chapter 7 up to verse uh, 53. So it's, it's verses 2 through 53. It's super long. We are going to come back to his speech. We're not gonna we're gonna touch his speech yet. We'll come back to that. But let's flip forward to the end of the speech, um, starting in Acts chapter seven, verses fifty-four. So <clears throat> after Stephen gives this super long speech, which we will talk about, uh, it says in verse fifty-four, we'll read through sixty. It says when they heard these things, all of this stuff that Stephen said, they were cut to the heart and they gnashed their teeth at him. But being full of the Holy Spirit, he gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God and said, Look, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Wow. Then they cried out with a loud voice, closed their ears and rushed at him in unison. And they threw him out of the city and stoned him. The witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. They stoned Stephen as he was calling on God, praying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he knelt down and cried with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Having said this, he fell asleep. Wow. So that is the account of Stephen stoning. That's the account of Stephen as, as the very first martyr of the New Testament church. So I, you can't help but point out these additional parallels to Jesus' death. Um, in verse 59, Stephen says, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit as he's being stoned. Um, if you look in Luke chapter 23, while Jesus is hanging on the cross, one of the last, it is, it is the last thing that he says before, before he dies. He says, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. It's almost the same thing. Um, in verse 60, as Stephen is, is being stoned, it says, He knelt down and cried with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Uh, again, Jesus, as Jesus is hanging on the cross in Luke chapter 23, he says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Stephen held to the example of Christ to a T, all the way down to his last words. All the way down to his last words. 
That is crazy. So <clears throat> I think there is a really, really key important takeaway here that, that we need to not miss. Um, <clears throat> I do not, I cannot believe that it is a coincidence that the circumstances surrounding the ministry and the death of the first Christian martyr so closely resemble the circumstances surrounding the ministry and death of Jesus himself. Like, that cannot be a coincidence. It cannot be. Um, And the reason that that is important is because Stephen's example takes away any excuse that we have. It takes away any excuse that we have. Because what could we say? Well, Jesus operated in ministry with, with signs and wonders and miracles because, yeah, he was man, but he was also God. Okay? Jesus was able to uh, remain sinless unto death and to even live out perfect forgiveness towards the people executing him because he was man, but he was also God. Stephen, guys, was not also God. Stephen was just a man like you and me. He was just a man like you and me. And uh, the, the fact that he was just a man, along with the fact that the record of his life following uh, Christ's example so perfectly leaves us without excuse. Like, we, we, can, we cannot say, like, you know, hey... Jesus lived out perfect forgiveness, but he was empowered to do so because he was God. Well, guess what? Stephen forgave the people executing him as he was being stoned, the exact same way that Jesus did. Um, Stephen walked in a signs, wonders, and miracles ministry, full of faith, full of the power of the Holy Spirit, as a regular person, a regular Joe, that was brought up into ministry serving tables. You know, we do not have any excuse. We do not have any excuse. Um, So, with that being said, the Christ-like life that we are called to, which involves, you know, taking up our cross unto death, which involves uh, living a life of of unity with the Holy Spirit, where where we are followed by signs, wonders, and miracles, where, um, you know, living out true boldness uh, and saying whatever needs to be said, uh, living out true faith and perfect forgiveness, all of these things are possible. Are possible. We can achieve this stuff. I'm not saying that Stephen wasn't sinless because he obviously obviously had sin. Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But... In the account of him, there is not one negative word said about him. Not one. Mm-hmm. Not one negative word said about Stephen. And that's because the faith that he walked in was so much greater than any of the, the negative that was in his life. And that type of life is available to us, and it is possible. So I think... I think there's a reason that God gave us Stephen's example as the first martyr and that it's, it's there because 
Stephen was the perfect model Christian. He was the perfect model little Christ, right? That if, you know, Jesus lived this life that, you know, is supposed to be our example, well, you know, like I said, we could make excuses and say that he was God. Well, God put the account of Stephen in here so that, you know, we could we could see what being a a mirror of Christ's Christ looks like. We could see what not actually being Christ, but being a little Christ looks like. Um, Stephen's life mirrored Jesus in every aspect, at least from this from this account. I mean, all the way up until his last words. All the way up to his last words. So there's a reason that it's that it's in here for us to see. And I, and I think that's it. And so that, so that we wouldn't have any excuse, and so that we have the perfect model that is that is of an actual regular human being doing all of this stuff and remaining faithful unto death and remaining bold and uh, walking in walking in this power and walking in faith and boldness and all of this stuff. The same stuff that Jesus did, except you know done by a guy that you could never accuse of of being also God you know we know we know that Jesus was fully God and fully man that he was tempted in all points like as we are yet without sin as it says in Hebrews um, and so Jesus gets the credit Jesus gets 100% of the credit of being the only sinless human being he was 100% human being he gets he gets the credit for that and to this day, there is a man, a human, sitting at the right hand of the Father. It's, it's, not, it's not, you know, half man, half God. There is a man, just like you and me, sitting at the right hand of the Father. That's crazy. But Stephen, I mean, he mirrored, he mirrored the life of Jesus perfectly, and so we are without excuse in that respect. So I thought that was super great. But so... Stephen was the first martyr, but his death was not in vain. His death was absolutely not in vain. And that's evidenced by the fact that, you know, we have an account of it here that inspires all of us to, to live this way. But also, you know, I personally think that it was the account of Stephen's boldness, you know, even unto death, which, you know, is, is a perfect Christ-like example it, it's that boldness and, and that, that death, the way that he, he died that ignited the fire behind Philip's ministry. Uh, because immediately follow, following this, we get the account of Philip going out after the scattering and the persecution and you know, going, going forth and wherever God told him to and living out signs, wonders, and miracles, living out like bringing people to Christ. And even being like teleported, <laughs> crazy stuff. Um, the account of that only happens after Stephen is stoned. That stuff that Philip did happened after this account of, of Stephen being martyred. And so I think, I think that that one instance like empowered the believers of the Jerusalem church to grow the church beyond the borders of Jerusalem in spite of being persecuted and scattered across like the known world at that time. Because that, that's what happened. That's exactly what happened. You'll see uh, the beginning of chapter 8, Saul was consenting to his death, and it says, On that day a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, 
and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Um, and, and down in verse 4 says, Therefore those who were scattered went everywhere preaching the word. I think if, <clears throat> if, Stephen, if Stephen had not died the way that he did, I think that there would, be, there would have been a whole lot less boldness there from those people. Probably. I don't know. It's just speculation, right? It's total speculation. But I really think, I really think that it made a huge difference in uh, the life and the growth of the church at that point. So, um, like I said a couple weeks ago, Satan probably had this plan to, you know, hey, I see this, this guy, Stephen, who's doing all of this great stuff for the church. I need to get this guy out the picture. <laughs> he probably said that. Um, and... He succeeded in one respect by getting Stephen out the picture, um, but what he probably didn't realize is all that did was even more so awaken the beast that was the church. Even more so awaken the beast that was the church. Um, his intention was probably to halt the influence of the church in Jerusalem, and what he ended up with was a church that was spread across like the known world in Europe and Asia and growing rapidly <laughs> in spite of the persecution that he was pouring out uh, literally at the hands of Saul. So that is, that is so cool. And we can go back a couple weeks to some of the key takeaways that I talked about. You know, when the going get, gets tough, the tough get going. Um, you know, when, when things get hard, lean into God more, not less. You know, that's exactly what they were doing. And Stephen was an amazing example. An amazing example of that. So, how long have we been going? Mm. Okay, that's fine. It's 8.37. Alright, we we're, we're going to keep going. So now that, now that we've kind of talked about all of that, now I want to go back and see what Stephen actually said in that big long speech in Acts chapter 7. So, uh, we're not going to read the whole thing because it is like 51 verses. And that's, I mean, we just don't have that kind of time right now. I mean, we do, but I don't, I don't want to subject to you guys. We had for 43 minutes, but like 12 of that was intro. Yeah, of course. Of course. So, um, <clears throat> I kind of want to give the Sparknotes version of this speech. And at the same time... Uh, very earnestly encourage you to go read it for yourself and try to figure out what it's all about. Um, because, well, first of all, it's it's long, so that's why I'm going to give this this Spartanos version of it. <clears throat> but also, it is a a great um, a great like uh, exercise to go through this thing and to figure out. What is he trying to say? <laughs> like, what is, what is the purpose of all this stuff he's saying? And how exactly is it a response to the accusations that are being brought against him? So, let's just kind of take a look at, at some of this, my, my paraphrased Sparknotes version of this speech. So, really, the, the question uh, that, that I thought was important to ask is, okay... What exactly was it that Stephen said that got him killed? <laughs> you know, what exactly was it that made, made the Sanhedrin so upset that they consented to stoning him? 
and they they perpetrated this this martyrdom upon his life. So let's let's just kind of talk about it a little bit. Really, what this speech is is a a history lesson of the nation of nation of Israel. It's a Jewish history lesson. Is exactly what it is. Um, and so let's just kind of jump into this Spargo's version of it. So he starts talking about Abraham. Um, and he talks about how Abraham, God calls Abraham to, to the promised land and, and out of, out of his, his land, you know, and, and calls him to, to this land of promise. And uh, there's this really interesting verse in here, in verse 4 of Acts chapter 7. It says, Then he, which is Abraham, departed from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. When his father died... He removed him from there to this land which, in which you now live. So you, you get in the intro like this first idea of, okay, Abraham is called somewhere by God. He's not immediately obedient, right? He, God calls him into, into Canaan, but he goes halfway and he goes to Haran where uh, he stays with his father until his father died. And so you kind of get this sense starting off that like, okay, we're, we're kind of talking about, um, we're, we're talking about, you know, the, the important figures of, of the Jewish nation, Abraham probably being the most important because he's the father of, of the Jewish nation, but God calls him to do something and he's like not really halfway obedient, but then God pulls him the, the whole rest of the way, <laughs> right? And Abraham remains faithful from there except for you know his little mishap with you know Ishmael and all of that stuff but so that's kind of where we start so he starts talking about Abraham um, he talks about uh, all of the promises that God gives to Abraham about being a father of the nation about how the people will be enslaved in Egypt and all of that stuff and then you get down to verse 8 um, it says then he, which is God, gave him the covenant of circumcision, and Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob, and Jacob of the twelve patriarchs. So this is this is really important because he makes Stephen makes reference to these patriarchs, or he also refers to them as our fathers, because these are these are Jewish people that he's talking to, and they were very intent on remaining uh, faithful and retaining the legacy of their fathers, our fathers, so that the patriarchs, the, the 12 sons of Jacob, I'm not going to name all the tribes, but you know who they are. Um, and so there's a lot of emphasis put on these guys. So verse 9, the patriarchs moved with envy, sold Joseph into Egypt, but God was with him. So here again, we've got this this idea of, okay, we've got these very important figures in terms of the Jewish lineage, the 12 patriarchs who are the, the chief figureheads of the 12 tribes. Um, God brings them and, uh, well, God basically uh, anoints Joseph through Joseph's dreams to a position of leadership over them and they're envious and they sell him into slavery. So it's this idea of, uh, you know, um, God has something that he's, he's giving to them, but like Abraham, they reject it at first. And, um, you know, that's, they're like disobedient in that respect. 
Um, but later we'll find out through, through this speech and also through the account in Genesis that um, Joseph rises to power in Egypt. He, he becomes governor over Pharaoh's house and like over the whole of the land. And his brothers essentially come and find him in this high position and they, they accept him for who he is because, because God has brought this famine on the land and they need his help. <laughs> so again, God brings them the rest of the way into accepting this guy as their savior, as their like anointed savior. Not that that's who Joseph was, but um, Joseph saved them because of his positioning in the Egyptian government. And so you see like this theme developing. Um, we, we keep going and we get all the way down to uh, in like verse, verse 20, he starts talking about Moses starts talking about Moses. And in verse 25, you guys know the story of how Moses Moses comes up. He's, you know, his, his mother puts him in the basket in the Nile and he's found by Pharaoh's daughter and, and raised as a, as a prince of Egypt, essentially, and all that stuff. So he lives 40 years as, as a prince of, prince of Egypt. But then we get to, um, <clears throat> to like verse 23 through 25. It's the account of Moses killing the Egyptian Who's, who's essentially uh, uh, mistreating uh, a, an Israelite or a, a Hebrew at that point. In verse 25, we see, um, he supposed that his brothers would understand that God would deliver them by his hand, but they did not understand. Um, and so... It's this thing again where Moses is is this guy that God has already planned to use as as their you know the one to deliver them out of Egypt, but they reject him. He's rejected. Um, we'll, we'll find that you can skip all the way down to first verse thirty five. It says, "This Moses, whom they rejected, saying, Who appointed you a ruler and a judge? God sent as both a ruler and a redeemer." by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush, and he led them out after he had shown wonders and signs in the land of Egypt and at the Red Sea and for 40 years in the wilderness. So, again, we see God has this, this good thing <laughs> that he wants for Israel, this guy that's going to that's gonna lead them out, that's going to like be, be their saving grace at this time, and they reject him. But... God turns the tables and just pushes them the rest of the way, right? <laughs> he pushes them the rest of the way through all of these amazing wonders and plagues that are poured out on, on Egypt. I mean, if you were a Jew at that point and you weren't like fully convinced that this dude was, was your ticket out of here, then you didn't know what you were talking about. So um, you see this theme developing of God having something good for Israel they reject it. Bad stuff happens. Uh, he brings them the rest of the way to where he wanted them in the first place. Um, we can keep going. Verse 37. This is the Moses who said to the sons of Israel, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. Him you shall hear. This is he who was in the congregation of the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai and with our fathers who received living oracles to give to us, whom our fathers would not obey, but thrust away, and in their hearts they turned back to Egypt. So again, 
God's got this good stuff that he wants for his children. He's giving the, them these living oracles from God, these Ten Commandments up on the mount. What happens? Moses comes down. He sees them worshiping this golden calf. Their hearts have turned back to the gods of Egypt. Like it's this repeating pattern of God has good stuff and they keep rejecting, they keep rejecting, they keep rejecting. And uh, so what happens after this is, you know, obviously more bad stuff happens after the, you know, after the golden calf incident, but God pushes them the rest of the way to following him. He gives them a tabernacle. He gives them, uh, he gives them, uh, he, he, carries them around in, in the wilderness, essentially. He gives them a tabernacle. Um, verse 44, Our fathers had the tabernacle of witness in the wilderness, telling Moses to make it as he commanded, according to the pattern that he had seen, um, which our father, having received it, brought it with Joshua, etc., etc. Um, <clears throat> so, I hope you guys see the pattern by now. <laughs> I hope you guys see the pattern. Oh, here, here's what I missed. Verse 42, I'm sorry. Here's what I missed. This is the important part. Um, after the calf in the wilderness thing, verse 42, but God turned and gave them up to worship the host of heaven as it is written in the book of the prophets. O house of Israel, have you offered to me slain animals and sacrifices for 40 years in the wilderness? Yes, you even raised the shrine to Moloch and the star of your god Remphan, idols which you made to worship. Therefore, I will exile you beyond Babylon. That's the part that I missed. So again, it's this thing. God has all this, this good stuff for them. These Ten Commandments. These, these living oracles by which he wants them to live. These are beautiful, amazing things for, that, that are going to you know, dictate and, and help them just live righteous lives. And yet they reject. Their hearts are returned back to Egypt. They're, they're following after these pagan gods. And so what does God... Was, more stuff happens. Bad stuff happens. They're exiled beyond Babylon. At the end of the day, the moral of the story is Israel continues to reject the good that God has for them. But God intervenes, and when God intervenes, they turn their hearts back to him. That right there is like the overarching theme of the history of Israel. I mean, you can see it all throughout the Old Testament. That's, that's what it's all about. That's what it's all about right there. So um, this is really what, what we're getting from, uh, from, from this history lesson that Stephen is giving the Sanhedrin. Um, Stephen does give them an answer to uh, the thing that they accuse him of blaspheming about the temple in verse 48. However, the Most High does not dwell in houses made with hands, as the prophet says. Heaven is my throne, and earth is my footstool. What house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Has not my hand made all these things? So, Stephen's basically saying, if you want to accuse me of blaspheming the temple, God don't need this temple. You guys are so, so far off from God's heart. You guys are so far off from, like, knowing who God is and what he is all about. He don't need this temple. You elevate the importance of the temple above God himself. So this, these next few verses are essentially the, I mean, this is his like uh, 
closing paragraph <laughs> that summarizes the whole thing right here his closing paragraph the the uh oh what do they call it when you're when you're in court the not the closing, closing argument yeah the closing argument this is his closing argument verse 51 you stiff-necked people uncircumcised in heart and ears you always resist the holy spirit as your fathers did so do you which of the prophets have your fathers not persecuted? They have even killed those who foretold the coming of the righteous one, of whom you have now become the betrayers and murderers, who have received the law by the disposition of angels, but have not kept it. So, in his closing arguments, he says, You guys are just like your fathers. You guys are just like your fathers. You, you have elevated your fathers to this to this level of importance, well, guess what? You're just like them. You are just like them. Um, you, res you always resist the Holy Spirit, and you've killed those who foretold the coming of the righteous one, of whom you've now become the betrayers and murderers. What is he saying? The ri this righteous one is Jesus. The prophets foretold his coming, and your fathers killed those prophets. Now the righteous one actually came, and you're the ones responsible for his death. Uh, so that's what Stephen said that got him killed. <laughs> they weren't too happy about all of that. They were not too happy about all of that. But one of the things that I think is absolutely fascinating that I've picked up in, in some of the commentaries that I've been reading about this is, you know, after, after that paragraph, I actually don't think Stephen got to finish his closing arguments. They jumped in too early. They got riled up. They got riled up. 54 says, when they heard these things, they were cut to the heart and they gnashed their teeth at him. So Stephen get, didn't get a chance to finish. So mm -hmm. what, what was the pattern that we saw in that speech? It's God has something good for, for his children. They reject it. God intervenes and brings them the rest of the way. And so, what is Stephen saying? He says, God had something good for you, this righteous, this righteous one. You rejected it. But guess what? Now some bad stuff is going to happen. God's going to intervene, and you're going to come around. That's what he was going to say. I think, anyway. So, there's this, this awesome passage that is almost identical to this from Jesus in Matthew chapter 23. Matthew 23, verses 37 through 39. This is a very famous verse. <clears throat> this is Jesus speaking. Uh, the, the title of this big long section in my Bible is The Denouncing of the Scribes and Pharisees. Um, this is during Holy Week after Jesus has already entered into Jerusalem and before, his, before the Last Supper and His crucifixion. He says... In verse 37 of Matthew chapter 23. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those who are sent to you, how often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you would not. Look, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you shall not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So again, Jesus echoes this exact pattern. He says, How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you would not. He's saying, I had, 
I have had so many good things for you. I have your redemption here. It is, I'm bringing your redemption with me. I am your redeemer. But you would not, you would not receive, you would not accept. And so what's the result of that? Verse 38, look, your house is left to you desolate. Um, but this is the piece that we didn't get to see in, uh, in Stephen's speech. It's that last verse. For I tell you, you shall not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That's the piece we don't see in Stephen's speech. That's the Israel coming the rest of the way round. Coming all the way back. Is, so you guys are probably familiar with that phrase, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That's the thing that people said you know, when they were laying the palm branches before Jesus when he was coming into Jerusalem. Well, Jesus is saying, you won't see me again until you say that. Well, they already said it. They already said it in Matthew chapter 21 when Jesus wrote in. So how is it that they won't see him again until they say that? Well, this is uh, in unison with the Old Testament prophecies of the second coming of Christ. One of the precursors to Jesus coming and instituting his millennial reign is that Jerusalem will cry out for him to save them. Wow. So, that's what Stephen didn't get to say. He said, he was, he, you know, that, that's, that, he didn't get to say what Jesus said, is that your house is going to be left to you desolate. Jesus pronounced, and you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus pronounced judicial blindness over Israel. But there would be a time that in their affliction, they would cry out to God again, and Jesus would come and redeem them. So, if Stephen had actually gotten around to saying something like that, would they be as mad? Probably still, yeah. <laughs> Probably still. But, um, <clears throat> but uh, it's, it's so crazy because there's this idea in the church. I wasn't even planning on talking about this. But there's, a, there's this idea in the church uh, called like replacement theology where people believe that the church has replaced Israel and God has essentially disposed with Israel in terms of his his prophetic plans and in terms of like, you know, what he wants to do in the future. Israel is still like a centerpiece of what is going on and will be the centerpiece of what is going on at the second coming. And we're going to talk about that in our Revelation series probably when we get into it. So this is a really good segue. But I just wanted you guys to, to get the picture that like Stephen, Stephen, was so bold in speaking what needed to be said, and he had so much wisdom uh, that that it got it got him killed. <laughs> it got him killed essentially. But there is so much, uh, so much that we can pick up and learn from this in reference to like God's, like well, the history of Israel to begin with, but God's like prophetic plan for the future. You know, we, we see the, the parallels here in what Stephen said and, and what, what Jesus said. So I really just wanted to, like, give you guys some insight as to, like, man, Stephen said some very, very provocative stuff. That's the reason he became the first martyr. He was not afraid to say it. He was not afraid to say it. Um, you know, uh, and basically, you know, Paul talks in, in Romans 
chapters 9, 10, 11, how Israel, there is still a place in God's prophetic plan for Israel. They are central to what he is doing. Um, and so Stephen was clued into that. Stephen was the first martyr of the, the first century church, and we, we recognize him as such. But his heart was towards the nation of Israel because, I mean, he was a Jew. He was a Jew. That, that's his heritage. I mean, it, all throughout that speech, he says, our fathers, our fathers. He's like, I'm part of this too. I see the truth, but you guys won't grab hold of it. That's what he was trying to say. So, I don't know. That's just some stuff for you guys to think about as we move forward in terms of learning about um, prophecy and end times and stuff like that. That, you know, it, this plays in very significantly. But um, Stephen's life was an amazing, amazing example of what being a little Christ is like. He, he said... He said the things that Jesus said. He did the things that Jesus did. Um, he did it with boldness. He did it with faith. He did it empowered by the Holy Spirit. And because of his example, we have no excuse. Thank you for listening to this message on the Identity House Ministries podcast. If you are interested in finding out more about our ministry, you can find us on Facebook by going to facebook.com slash Identity House. We pray that today's teaching brings you in closer relationship with God the Father and empowers you to walk in your God-given identity.